you know, if you've been with us, uh, we've been looking at Abraham uh, in the book of Genesis. Abraham, the Abraham cycle goes from chapters 12 uh, through chapter 25. And uh, last week we looked at chapter 13, which was a, a, an exchange between Abraham and his nephew Lot. Now, Lot was, uh, he, he, was Abraham, he lived with Abraham because uh, his father, Abraham's brother, Haran, had died. Uh, so Abraham had come into a lot of wealth and because Lot was more or less kind of a son to him. They both were very wealthy together. Lot benefited from Abraham's wealth. And their wealth wasn't measured in a bank account, but was measured by livestock. So they needed land uh, in order to sustain their flocks. And they had such a big flock uh, together that they had to separate. And there was land, and Abraham, being uh, the one who's superior to Lot, says, Hey, Lot, which of these two pieces would you want? And Lot takes the more lush piece, takes the more beautiful piece, and Abraham electively takes the worst of the two. It really does show... Abraham's generosity. In chapter 14, we see Abraham's generosity extended once again to his nephew Lot. And I want to just summarize verses 1 to 10, and then we'll start reading in verse 11. And essentially what happens in those first 10 verses of chapter 14 is that you've got a battle. You have, uh, five, you have four kings who are from the east. They're from uh, what is modern day Iraq and Iran uh, and Turkey. And those four kings, they travel west towards what is now the Jordan, what was the country of Jordan. And uh, in the country of Jordan, in those days, there were five kings. So you've four kings from the east battling five kings who are in modern-day Jordan. The four kings take over the five kings. They make quick work of them. So now they've expanded their kingdom. They get to take their land and their people and all their possessions and you wonder, why is this noteworthy in Genesis, this kind of uh, Middle Eastern feud of sorts? Well, I think it'll be real obvious to you when we start reading verse 11. Let's start reading verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot. So you see why it's interesting. It's the narrator of Genesis right there. They took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. And Sodom was... Uh, one of the lands of the five kings who were defeated. Okay? It's the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then w the one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and of Anur. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God 
Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. The word of the Lord. So you see, what makes this so important to Abraham? What makes it important is that one of the defeated kings is the king of Sodom, and that's where Lot lives. So Lot is in danger. So will Abraham rescue Lot? I think it's a good question, right? I mean, it's a fair one. Lot likely wouldn't meet my minimum threshold as someone who's worth helping. He likely wouldn't pass the two questions that at least I ask, and you might too, when you're evaluating whether to help somebody or not. I think those two questions are this. Do they deserve my time? And what's it going to cost me? In terms of time, and, and, and what's it going to cost me, period. Do they deserve my time? What's it going to cost me? And I think part of the reason I ask these questions when I evaluate whether to help someone, and you likely do too, is that you got to have boundaries, right? I mean, the reality is we're finite beings. We've got to realize our limits, especially when it comes to our time and to our relationships. I think when we realize our limits, when we know our limitations, we're able to serve God. We're able to serve Him with the utmost of our ability. So setting boundaries is not always a sign of laziness. It's not always a sign of avoiding what's difficult. But certainly can be. We can all use this whole idea of boundaries as just an excuse to preserve our own comforts, can't we? I mean, Abraham. I mean, Abraham could have set a really firm boundary with Lot because Lot has proven himself thus far in the narrative to be very shallow. He's very foolish. He seems to only care about himself. And then you see from chapters 13 to 14 that in chapter 13, Lot lived near Sodom. Chapter 14, he lives in Sodom, a wicked place full of evil persons, according to Genesis chapter 13. So now, Sodom, full of these wicked people, gets captured, and Lot gets captured too, in part because he's moved in with them. So how should Abraham respond? Should he think, if Lot hadn't moved in to Sodom, he wouldn't have gotten captured? Should he just throw in the towel on Lot for his mistake and let him learn via natural consequences? Should he be careful not to enable Lot? Should he show him some tough love? Well, I think at least according to the first question, do they deserve my time? I don't think Lot deserves Abraham's time. I think it's a firm no. But how about that second one? What's it going to cost Abraham? To love Lot. Well, I think that's a firm no too, don't you? I mean, he's going to have to fight a battle just to get Lot back. I mean, it's not going to be convenient. He's going to have to risk his life to save a fool. So you see Abraham here. He is willing to take that risk. He's willing to overlook Lot's flaws. You see Abraham with a big heartedness about him, don't you? You begin to see his, the, the, the fruit of his repentance. He's repented from all that 
was part of his life in chapter 12 when he was in Egypt, when he lied about the relationship he had with Sarah. He goes back, like we talked about last week, and repents at the altar of Bethel. And this has changed him. It's changed him. He's bearing this fruit. He's able to love Lot sacrificially. Is this what love looks like in your life? I mean, it's my perception that none of us are very good at knowing how to deal with needy people. I mean, we either tend to say yes too often or no too often. If you say yes too often, you operate with a bit of a savior mentality, a bit of a Messiah complex, and you tend to enable others, and you're a sucker for needy people. We got any of those folks in the room? Nobody's going to raise their hand on that one. Or we tend in the other direction. We say no too often because we're so conscious of what other people are going to require from us. We're so conscious that we won't get within 10 feet of a needy person. We won't even talk to them. And we all do it in the name of boundaries. But love is motivated by grace, isn't it? And when it's motivated by the grace of God, it allows you to take risks. I think the only reason Abraham was willing to love Lot was because he saw that's how God loved him. God loved him when he didn't deserve it. God loved him when it cost him much. And you see Abraham here. He goes off to fight this battle and his motivation isn't money. His motivation isn't to make a name for himself. He doesn't even go off to battle because he himself is in danger and is just on the defense. No, Abraham was roused by love for his foolish nephew Lot. Well, doesn't that sound familiar, brother and sister? See, Jesus didn't sit idly in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Jesus left his cosmic confines to rescue us from the clutches of evil, didn't he? And he didn't just risk his life, he gave it. He gave it for you. And, and if God had had the kind of boundaries that I have, then Jesus would have been totally isolated during his years of public ministry. Jesus would have only prayed because all the people he interacted with didn't deserve his time and all the people he engaged with cost him dearly. Same's true for us. We don't deserve Jesus. He shouldn't give a rip about us. We're nothing but an energy drain for him. But he loves us in spite of our unworthiness. He moves towards us anyways. And when you see him do it in that way, it empowers you to move towards others when it's uncomfortable and costly. But you also move towards people and you won't need their approval. So it's commendable, isn't it, of Abraham to go after Lot? But it's not the only thing commendable in this passage about Abraham. You also see what's commendable is his military prowess. This isn't something you've seen in Abraham, these previous two chapters in the book. You've seen him be a shepherd. You've seen him be a farmer. But you've not seen him fight. And here he is. God's prepared him for this fight. He's allowed Abraham to amass quite the squad. He's got 318 men. These 318 men are a part of his estate that I'm sure are a part of dealing with his day-to-day -day wealth. And they all go into battle and they come out victors. And they do it just to get Lot. He goes up again. He has this 
stellar plan. He drives out these four kings out of Jordan. He takes all the stuff that they've plundered from the five Jordanian kings. He gives all that stuff back. And now things are back to normal for those nations. All because of Abraham's victory on their behalf. And if I were Abraham and I had come back from a victory over four powerful kings with 318 men, that's all I had, I would have gloated, wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, Abraham just accomplished something very remarkable. And you get the sense that when he comes home, there should have been this parade, not just in his home, but in these lands of the five kings that he had just got back all their stuff. I mean, I would think it looked something like it did in London after World War II. In London after World War II, you had people on one side of the street asking, uh, saying, who won the war? And you had people on the other side of the street saying, we won the war. Those eight words. And Winston Churchill gives the account that this happened in London for over 24 hours straight. And you think when Abraham goes back to Sodom and those other four nations that they'd be singing his praises. But you don't see this kind of parade. You see something much, much smaller happen for Abraham. You see him greeted by just two kings. One is the king of Sodom. His name is Barah. The other is the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. If you contrast these two kings and how they interact with Abraham towards this, in the last half of this passage, it's very instructive for us. Let's look at Sodom first. <laughs> Here's what he does to Abraham. He gives Abraham nothing. In fact, he meets the person who just saved his life and the life of all his people, and he's bearing no gifts. All he does is offer him a deal. Do you see it in verses 21 and 22? He says, give me the people... And I'll let you keep my goods and my stuff. He doesn't say thank you. And the only reason the king of Sodom has anything for Abraham is his own selfish intent. Abraham could have just said, you know what, uh, king of Sodom, Barah, you know, since you're such a selfish, wicked, thankless person who's preoccupied with grasping for power, I'm just going to take everything. I mean, if I could knock out those four powerful kings, I could sure knock you out too. That's the king of Sodom. You've got a, another king. He's shadowy and cryptic and mysterious. This Melchizedek, this king of Salem. And there's lots of things to note. The first is that he's a priest and a king. I mean, that would be like being on the Supreme Court and being in the Senate. Privileged position. Another thing of note is he comes to Abraham to refresh him with bread and wine, even though Abraham didn't win anything back for him. Salem wasn't one of the countries that was conquered, and then Abraham won all the plunder back and gave it to him. Melchizedek just seems to be this random king from this random place. But he refreshes him anyways. And you see that Melchizedek blesses Abraham in the name of the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and then you see Melchizedek bless God. You know why this is extraordinary? It's extraordinary because Melchizedek is a Canaanite. He's a pagan. We have no idea how he could have come to faith in the name of the God of Abraham. It's miraculous, if not a bit unusual. 
Melchizedek, this shadowy, cryptic, mysterious king. And then you have the names associated with his kingship. One is that he's the, his name means king of righteousness. And the place he rules over is Salem, which just means peace. So here you have in Melchizedek these two important Old Testament themes wedded in one person, peace and righteousness. So what's Abraham going to do? What's he going to do with Sodom? How's he going to respond to the deal that Sodom's trying to strike? What's he going to do with Melchizedek? This cryptic, mysterious, shadowy figure. Well, we see Melchizedek, what he does, he ties. He gives Melchizedek 10% of all he has. There's no such thing as tithing in Genesis. This is the first time we see tithe in the Old Testament. You see it a lot later. You see it a lot once you see how God gives his people the law. Because in the law, he gives them very clear instructions on what it means to tithe. But these laws are not in effect here in Genesis 14. So how does Abraham know to do it? Well, I think it just came naturally. He starts doing things without being told, which is the sign of maturity for Abraham, just like it is for us. And I think the reason that he gives so naturally is because these three things are true of him. The first is this. Abraham noticed that Melchizedek was his superior. Superior to Abraham? Really? I mean, this is the man God's chosen who dominates the rest of the scriptures, Old and New Testament. This is the man who, against all odds, defeats the four powerful kings. This is the man who's motivated by grace to love his nephew. So Melchizedek is superior to Abraham? Really? Yes. He was in awe of him. And that's why he gave him a tithe, 10% of what he had. I think there's another reason he gives him a tithe. It's because he freshly believes what he already knew. I mean, look at the theological content of Melchizedek's blessing. Melchizedek says, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Well, Abraham had already believed that. That wasn't new news to Abraham. Abraham knows that all's from God. He knows that he doesn't really possess anything. He knows that God has let him borrow some things, but they're not his. I think the third reason he gives that he's grateful. Abraham's grown in his faith. He's not going to buy his own good press. He knows he doesn't have anything that he didn't receive. So just giving Melchizedek a tithe, that's a sign of a thankful heart. Now, these are all things we should do too, right? If we do, if we do give gratefully, if we do give because we're believing afresh the things we already know, and if we are giving because we see not just Melchizedek, but Jesus our superior, we'll give naturally too. But it all starts in seeing Jesus as the true and better Melchizedek. And you start seeing the connections between the two from the passage that Sue's read earlier from Hebrews 7. Let's look at some of these connections. One is that Jesus is the only other person in all the scriptures besides Melchizedek who is a priest and a king. So in that way, Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's also like Melchizedek because Jesus, who's a priest, he's got no predecessor or no successor. Melchizedek doesn't either. But every other priest in the scriptures 
has predecessors and successors. They're all from the same line. They're all from the line of Levi. That's why they're called, the, the priest, the synonymous term is Levites. But Melchizedek predated Levi. And Jesus didn't come from the Levite line. He came from the line of Judah. So what makes Jesus the true and better Melchizedek is that he died. Melchizedek died, and with him, the priesthood of, of God's people, it died for a while. And it wouldn't be picked up for several generations. But Jesus, on the other hand, he never died, meaning he has continued his priestly duty into, into the present day. We also know Jesus is a superior king. Melchizedek is just the king of Salem. Jesus is the king of the universe. The true and better Melchizedek. You see another connection. You see how they both figures they wed these two terms, righteousness and peace. See, Jesus is righteous. 1 John 2, 1 says that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Meaning that Jesus is intrinsically righteous. He's the source of righteousness, the sum of righteousness. He's the essence of righteousness. But he doesn't just keep this righteousness to himself. He bestows it. He gives it. And Romans 3 says that we become righteousness through faith in the righteous one, Jesus. Melchizedek couldn't bestow righteousness. Jesus, Melchizedek was only righteous to a degree where Jesus was righteous fully. Well, look at peace. Same thing. See, Jesus is peace incarnate. Jesus embodies peace perfectly. Isaiah 9 says that he's the prince of peace. John 14 says that he also bestows peace. He gives peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. See, Jesus embodies both these concepts fully and he freely gives them to people who don't deserve it. See, Jesus hung on a cross as the righteous son of God so that you and I could have peace with God. The true and better Melchizedek. So do you see Jesus superior, not just to Melchizedek, but also to you? Do you see Jesus as your superior? Because if you do, it's not meant so much to intimidate you, but to enchant you. See, I think there was something about Melchizedek that Abraham marveled at. He knew he was in the presence of the holy. And that just naturally made him generous towards Melchizedek. And when we see Jesus in the same way, when we're enchanted by him, enthralled by him, we know we're in the presence of the holy, it changes everything about our money. You'll start giving like Abraham naturally. You're not going to need a compelling vision from a church. You're not going to have to need a, 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 to see a budget need here at church or in some nonprofit in order to give. It, it'll just be instinctive for you. You'll start getting raises at work and your first impulse will be to give it, not to spend it. You'll get an unexpected gift and you'll think, how can I sell this thing so I can give the money away? I don't know what that situation is going to be for you, but I know if you want to fight evil, if you want to fight pride growing in your heart, give your money away or you'll believe your press. You'll believe that you deserve the gift you got. You'll believe that you deserve the raise you got. And Abraham did it. But look at how he deals with the king of Sodom. You know, he gets this, Abraham gets this blessing from Melchizedek first. 
And I think this blessing is what prepares him on dealing with the temptation that King of Sodom gave him. In fact, you see Abraham borrow the exact same words from Melchizedek to tell King of Sodom why he won't accept his proposal. See, because of Melchizedek, Abraham was able to discern the danger of accepting worldly benefits from Sodom. See, all the plunder, the people, the possessions that the four kings stole from Sodom, Abraham gave them back, and he wouldn't take any for himself. That shows that Abraham's grounded in his success. He could receive the blessing and refreshment in the verbal affirmation from Melchizedek, and then he could resist the temptation from Sodom. He had to trust afresh in the promises that God already spoken to him back in chapter 12. Where God said, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing to the nation. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He had to believe those afresh. If he doesn't believe these promises, he's going to feel insecure. It's going to open him up to accept this bribe from Sodom. And brother and sister, if you distrust God's promises, you're going to shrink too. You'll be reduced. You'll be hermetically sealed in the Ziploc bag of self. And you'll take whatever you can get. If Abraham would have taken everything he could have gotten, he would have taken all of that from Sodom. But he didn't. He had to believe God. When you believe God, the world's proposals become small. When you believe God, you'll be able to sacrifice for others. When you believe God, your heart will enlarge. So what does this mean for you and me? I mean, are you supposed to go to some kind of military battle this afternoon? Is that where we're headed? Do it all in the name of God? That's not what this passage is mostly about. The most crucial battle in Genesis 14 isn't the one that he fought as a military general. The fights that Abraham fought that were most important were all in his heart. The first one is, is he going to risk moving towards an undeserving person? The second one is, is he going to recognize Melchizedek for who he really is? And the third one is, is he going to have the inner fortitude to refuse unjust gain from the king of Sodom? Those are the battlegrounds he had to face, and those are the ones me and you have to face today. See, Ephesians 6 says that our warfare is spiritual in nature. It's not against flesh and blood that we war, but it's against the unseen. These warfare, it's located in these two places. Our relationship with other people, Abraham and Lot, needy persons, the unseen space between us and them. That's the spiritual warfare. It's found in another place. It's found in money. That unseen space between you and money. And so how will you fight this week? Will you trust God's gracious promises? Or will you unwittingly give into the schemes of evil and become small-hearted? Let's pray. Father, we are relentlessly bent in on ourselves. Lord, as we think only of our own pleasure and comfort and peace and success, Lord, we're, we're very slow to realize that all we have is from you. We're very slow to move towards others in a way that's healthy. Help us do that this week. 
Lord, you live in us, and Lord, we, we, you did that for us, and you continue to live in us, and so Lord, pray you would live that out in us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.